Friends, will you pray with me? Father, we want to see Jesus this morning. Open our ears to hear all that you would have for us. Open our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Time is a funny thing, is it not? Or at least the way that we tell time. We usually understand it as kind of progressing linearly into the future, while at the same time we notice that time has this cyclical nature to it. Months, seasons, holidays, they always seem to come back around again. I think this is actually a good thing, especially for our spiritual well-being, because even though we can never change the past, at least we can be given an opportunity to somehow start over again. Now, I don't know about you, but I really needed the Advent season this year. I know that for many of us, 2017 has been an incredibly difficult year. Lots of us have had personal hardships, difficult relationships. We've had unwanted transitions. Many of us have lost loved ones this year. And to top it all, top it all off, every time we turn on the TV, there's some new event that reminds us just how chaotic our world actually is. 2017, for me at least, has been a reminder that our world is still a very dark place. But Advent comes back around again, and it gives us a chance to reorient and recalibrate our lives to the reality of Christ in the world. Now, one way it does that is through the Advent wreath. For example, now I know many of you have your own personal family traditions that you do with the Advent wreath. On Sunday morning, we don't really do much with it. It just kind of shows up one day. And then we light a candle, and we light another candle, and we light another candle. It's a very silent, there's a lot of silent symbolism in it. It's a very silent but powerful reminder that a light still shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Moreover, it's a reminder that that light is growing brighter and brighter and brighter until the fullness of the new day. Advent always comes back around again, and that's a good thing. Through it, the Spirit calls to us to reorient and recalibrate our perspective and our lives towards the things of God. The darkness in the world easily distracts us. But Advent is a time for us to turn our focus back Onto Christ, who is the light of the world. Focusing on Christ is how we find confidence in the midst of a very confusing world. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a passage that I believe gives us some direction on how to do that. So if you have your scriptures, let me invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. We're going to look at the story that we call the Annunciation to Mary, when the angel shows up and announces to this ordinary teenager that she's going to become the mother of God incarnate. Now, if there's ever a moment of confusion, then, friends, I believe that this would be it. But I believe that we're going to see, what we're going to see in this passage is through the way the angel describes what's going to happen to Mary and in Mary's response— What we're going to see is an example of how to live as people who are awaiting their coming king. And so if I can, let me go ahead and give you the premise for my message today. It goes like this. It's a reminder that we can have confidence in the midst of confusion because Christ is king. 
as Advent draws to a close and as we look towards Christmas and even towards the year ahead, we can have confidence even in the midst of confusion because we know that Christ is king. So if you will, look with me in the passage, starting in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now Luke starts out this passage connecting it with the previous passage in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. You see, just prior to these verses, uh, we see the angel Gabriel showing up to a, uh, appearing to a priest named Zechariah while he was in the temple doing his religious duties. Gabriel tells Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth, who is old and barren, will become pregnant with a son who will turn out to be John, the forerunner of Christ. Now notice the setting there. Zechariah is a priest in the temple in Jerusalem, one of the most important people in one of the most important places in the most important city. Contrast that with our scene this morning. The angel appears to a girl, young girl, probably 14, 15, 16, something like that, in Nazareth, a town of absolutely no importance that we don't even know exists until this very moment. An insignificant person in an insignificant place. That's important because we need to remember that when the king lays aside all of his glories and steps out of heaven, he doesn't always come to the places where we would most expect him to show up. The setting's important for our passage, but also so is the messenger. Angels we see appearing all throughout Scripture. They appear all throughout the Old Testament, particularly in scenes where the heavens are open up and we get to glimpse into the heavenly realms. It's filled with angels. However, Angels aren't always named. They're not named very often. In fact, we only know of a couple. We know of Michael, everybody's favorite archangel who leads the host of heaven. And we know of Gabriel. Names aren't given that often. But it's important for our passage today that Gabriel specifically is the one that's named. Now, in popular Christian thinking... Gabriel has come to be the one who blows the trumpet when, to announce the, coming of the, the, the second coming of Christ. That's how people normally tend to think of him. Now, in Revelation, there is a passage where an angel blows a trumpet and the second coming happens, but Gabriel's not specifically named. That's a, a mythology that, that's, that's developed over the years. However, there is one, one other place where Gabriel specifically is named, and that's in the book of Daniel, specifically chapters 8 and chapters 9. And what happens there is that Daniel is given two visions, and Gabriel is the one who shows up to interpret those visions. In chapter 8, verse 27, Gabriel shows up and tells Daniel, he says this. He says, Understand, O man, that these visions are for the end of time. Then again in chapter 9, there's another similar vision And Gabriel shows up and explains in great detail how God will restore Jerusalem, will send an anointed one to be a prince over all of Israel, and who will restore an everlasting righteousness. Now, there are a lot in those chapters, and I do commend them for your own reading, but for our purposes this morning, I don't want us to miss the fact that by naming Gabriel in in our particular passage, God is showing us 
that he is working to fulfill his promises and his long-awaited purposes. The fact that, angel, that the angel Gabriel is mentioned specifically means that an old age is coming to an end and that a new age is dawning. God is at work. In fact, God is always at work. God is always at work, but we don't always see it. And even if we do see it, we don't always understand it. That's okay. God doesn't need us to understand everything. What God wants from us is to have faith. That's why in verse 28, the angel says, it says, the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by these words and began to wonder about the meaning of the greeting. To say that she was greatly troubled, I believe, is an understatement. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? Here's a teenage girl, and the only thing that we know about her is that she's betrothed to David, and let me give an aside here. Luke specifically doesn't call Mary Joseph's wife. He doesn't call her Joseph's wife. He says that she's betrothed to him. Because Luke specifically wants to let us know that no sexual activity has taken place at this time. She is a virgin. However, she's betrothed to David, which means that she is still legally part of David's household at this point. And any child born of her would be still legally part of David's household. And as we know, David is, I'm, I'm sorry, Joseph, and Joseph is part of David's household. Sorry, she's married to Joseph, not David. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but anyways, for, for our point now, um, what we have is we have a Jewish teenage girl who's going about life, we suspect, we, we suspect, doing things that first century teenage girls do when all of a sudden she is interrupted in a way that will change not only her life, but the course of history, the entire course of history, which is why I love verse 29. Verse 29 says that Mary is greatly troubled by his words. She was troubled by his words and began to wonder about the meaning of the greeting. Now, again, I don't know about you, but it probably would not have been his words that troubled me the most. I think I would have been more troubled by the fact that all of a sudden I'm seeing an angel. And in fact, when we look through the Old Testament, we do see people fearing and trembling when an angel appears to them simply because an angel has appeared to them. I look at verse 29 and I think, Two things, really. I think, okay, what kind of person must Mary have been to be troubled more by the words and not by the appearance, subtle appearance of an angel? And then it also asks the second question, well, what kind of words must these have been to trouble her so much? The angel says to her, and what he says specifically is, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Now, to us, that sounds like a normal greeting, doesn't it? We say it all the time. The Lord be with you. Also with you. There we go. In Scripture, however, it is much more than just a greeting. In fact, we see variations of this all throughout the Old Testament, especially when someone is given an angelic or a prophetic commission. There is an assurance that God is with them, empowering them in their mission. At the Great Commission, for example, when Jesus sends his disciples out on mission, he assures them, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. I think Mary heard those words loud and clear. 
I think she understood that God was about to do something and that she was about to be a part of it. She didn't know what it was or even why her. That's why in verse 30, the angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I have not been intimate with a man? And when we look at this, there's a similar structure that happens with this particular answer and in the explanation that Gabriel will give her in his next explanation. Gabriel will tell Mary that something is about to happen to her, and then he will go into great detail about who Jesus is. Gabriel is going to tell her that she's going to become, or she's telling her that she's going to become pregnant, and she's going to give birth to a son whose name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. The child himself will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will become king in the line of David, whose kingdom will last forever. Now, to Jewish ears, those words are like a light in the darkness. The entire hope of Israel is that one day God would restore the throne of David. That was the thing that was on everybody's mind. It was what everybody was waiting for. Now, at this point in time, even though a lot of people had returned from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem, there was still this belief that they were still in exile. They still believed that they were in exile. They were under Roman occupation. And what that meant for them is that their sins had not been fully atoned for. You see, all throughout, they, they knew that they were in exile in the first place because of their sin and disobedience to the law. And then all throughout the Old Testament, we see promise after promise that God would forgive their sins and would send a Messiah, an anointed one who will sit on David's throne and will cast out all enemies, spiritual and physical. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. In those verses, Gabriel explains to Daniel, he he says this, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place. Now know, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Don't get hung up at this point on the, on the timing, but do know that Israel was waiting for this particular promise to come about. And here we have the angel Gabriel the one who explained this prophecy to Daniel all those generations ago, showing up on the doorstep of a young girl in an insignificant town, telling her that the long-awaited hope of Israel, of her people, is about to be realized, and God is going to use her womb to do so. Now, I can just imagine that scene going something like this. After Gabriel finishes up his long, beautiful speech about the glories of the coming Christ, I could see Mary going, hold up. What was that first thing you said again? (laughs) Wait, wait, wait a minute. That, that's all great and all, but you said I was going to have, have a baby? How, how do you expect that to happen? Mary does ask the question of how. 
She asked the question, how? But Luke wants us to know that her question is not from unbelief. In fact, he deliberately contrasts her question to Gabriel with Zechariah's response to Gabriel in the previous passage. You see, Zechariah asked Gabriel for a sign of assurance that all of these things are going to come about. And what that effectively reveals is that Gabriel, the priest, doesn't believe. And as a consequence, the priest is, is, becomes mute until John is born. Contrast that with Mary, this random teenage girl. She does ask for a clarifying question. She does ask a clarifying question. But it comes from a place of faith. It comes from a place of faith. And let me suggest to you, it's okay to ask God for clarification when things are confusing. It's okay. Asking God from a place of humility can be a sign of great faith. Let me also suggest to you that God might make his plans known in surprising ways in order that we would ask for clarification. We know that God likes to surprise us. We know that surprises get our attention. And when God has our attention, only then are we in a place where he can reveal to us something about himself. If we are willing to humble ourselves, then we can receive all that the Lord would want us to receive in those surprising moments. There is a huge difference between two postures, between, the posture, between one posture that says, all right, God, if I'm going to do this, you got to give me a sign. You just got to give me a sign. And there's another posture that says, okay, God, you have my attention. I'm willing to listen. There's a huge difference between those postures. And Mary chose the latter one. In verse 35, the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And look, your relative Elizabeth has also become pregnant in her old age. Although she was called barren, she is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Now, I can't say that Gabriel's answer clarified everything for Mary, but there are important overtones that I believe Mary would have understood. She is told that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. That's important. Now, overshadowing is not some crude sexual reference. It's a word that is rich with Old Testament allusions. For example, in Genesis, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of creation, bringing forth life out of nothing but by the word of God. At Mount Sinai, we see a cloud overshadowing a mountain as God gives the law to Moses. At the dedication of the tabernacle, there is a cloud that overshadows the tabernacle, which is the Shekinah glory, and it fills the tabernacle with the presence of God. I don't believe these illusions would have been lost on Mary. I also don't believe that she would have missed the statement about her relative Elizabeth. In fact, that was probably the first time she heard that Elizabeth was pregnant. Elizabeth, we're told in the passage before, goes into hiding. The significance, however, lies in the fact that once again, God has done something that he has done multiple times. He's caused a barren woman to conceive. Just like he did with Sarah and Rebecca and Hannah. 
Now with Elizabeth, God has shown his power by creating life in a place where by all human logic and by all human strength, life could never have been created. Gabriel answered Mary's question of how. And in doing so, he explained who. She asked, how is this going to happen? And he says, the God who creates out of nothing, the God who does the impossible, and the God who fulfills his promises, that God will do it. That's how. And so Mary is then able to come to a place where in verse 38, she's able to respond and say, yes, I am the servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Let me suggest to you that Mary's response is one of the most profound statements uttered in all of human history. Let me also suggest to you that it is that this response is the archetypal response for everyone who is called to be a disciple of Christ. You see, Mary's response is a submission to the purposes of God in and through her life. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever wonder how Mary was able to say yes in that moment? It was not because she had some superhuman power to do so, that allowed her to do so. Mary really was just a normal human being like the rest of us. I wonder how much time she spent counting the cost. The way it's written makes it sound like she said yes right away. I wonder if she counted the cost. She would have had every right to do so. I mean, think about this. She was about to bear the full weight of the purposes of God in her body, while at the same time having to figure out a way to explain something that could have caused a huge scandal and bring shame on both her and Joseph for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's a huge burden to bear. And that's just the family problems. Did she take into account the legal ramifications of going around telling everybody that her son was the future king? The current king wouldn't have received that news very kindly, and as we know as the story plays out, he doesn't. We aren't told what all went through Mary's mind. All we are told, the scripture tells us, is that she said yes to God's plan. She says, let it happen according to your word. And that, I believe, is the key to the passage, and I believe it's the key to Mary's disposition and to our entire life of discipleship. Let it happen according to your word. Do you know why Mary was blessed? It was not because of who she was. She was blessed because she believed God. In the next passage which we're not going to look at too much today, but in the next passage, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And in their conversation, in verse 45 of chapter 1, Elizabeth proclaims to Mary, says this, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth affirms that ultimately Mary is blessed, most blessed among women, not because she gave birth to a Savior, although there is obvious blessing in that. But she's blessed because she believed the word of God that had been spoken to her. 
And this is actually a theme that Jesus himself picks up a few times throughout his ministry. For example, in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, when Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him, there's a scene where he's preaching, his mothers and brothers come looking for him, and they say, hey, your mothers and brothers are outside. And then he proclaims to to the crowd, he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, I don't think that Jesus was completely discrediting his family at that moment, but I think he was using this as a teaching moment to drive home the point that believing the word of God is what brings you into the family of God. Again, in Luke chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus again is teaching crowds when all of a sudden this random woman calls out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. Now, it's a very colorful way of saying how blessed it must be to be your mother. See, this woman believes that it would be wonderful to be Jesus' mother because Jesus was a great man. And at the time, the worth of a woman was often determined by the quality of the sons that they produced. However, Jesus responds this way. He says, "Blessed, blessed rather are those who hear God's words and obey it. Jesus again is saying, My mother is blessed, not simply because she gave me birth. She is blessed because of her devotion and her faithfulness to the word of God. Mary, I believe, is the ideal role model for followers of Christ. She is a servant who embodies faith and faithfulness because she is willing to believe the word of God spoken to her. Now, as I've said a few times throughout the sermon, there is an important structure in Gabriel's explanation to Mary. He tells her that God is going to do something, and then he explains in great detail who Jesus is. And she believes him. She believes that Jesus is going to be the king whose kingdom will have no end. She believes that he is God incarnate, the son of God, the son of the most high. Now, did she understand it all? No, probably not. And as much as I hate to admit it, there's probably some truth to that cheesy song that everybody loves to listen to around this time, but I digress. She didn't need to understand everything. She didn't need to understand. She just needed to have faith that God was at work. And it was that faith that allowed her to to submit to the purposes of God. Now, friends, more than likely... We will never have an angel appear out of nowhere and spell out God's plan for our lives. However, I believe that we do have a vantage point that Mary did not have. You see, we know that Jesus has died on the cross for us, releasing us from sins that so easily enslave us. We know that Christ is risen from the dead, effectively overcoming death and opening to us a way for new and unending life. That means that whatever sorrows, trials, confusions, or even persecutions that we might face, our hope is that our grief will only last for a short time and that death is not the end. We know this because we know who Jesus is. And we know that our God has a very good track record of fulfilling his promises. And so we can look forward in hope and in faith to the day when Christ will return and fully establish his future kingdom that is, at least in part, 
a very present reality. Ultimately, it is that kingdom vision and that kingdom perspective that gives us confidence in the midst of confusion. One last thing. Mary was told that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and the power of the Most High would come upon her. In Acts 1.8, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples as he departs this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. Does it sound familiar? It's supposed to. It's the same language. The same Spirit that made it possible for a virgin to give birth to the incarnate God is the same Spirit that lives in us now and empowers us to be witnesses for Christ and His kingdom. Submission to the purposes of God comes solely from believing the word about who Christ is. And it's that truth with which we must continually, uh, towards which we must continually reorient our lives and recalibrate our perspectives. The world is still a very dark place, but believing the word of God serves for us as a light in that darkness. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the world is still a very confusing place, but we can have confidence in the midst of that confusion because we know that Christ is King. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.